we just be still before the Lord and rest in his great love for us? Maybe you came into this place this morning and and you're hurting and you're broken and you don't feel valued and you don't feel worth it. Can I just be the voice of God to you for a minute? He says, I love you. He says, I care. He says, you're worth it. He says, I value you. He says, I didn't mess up when I made you. I didn't quit early and say that, 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 that one's good enough. He made you just like you are, just the way he wanted you. His love is rich, pure, and it's measureless and strong, and it's for you today. You think you came in this place to sing to God, you know that the Bible says that he sings over us. Jesus is writing songs about you about his great love for you. It's good news. God, your love is measureless, strong, and vast. Shallow enough for a child to bathe and deep enough for an elephant to wade in and experience it in full. We're grateful for your great love for us today, oh God, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're in the middle of a series called Questions. Questions, everything you ever wanted to know about God but were afraid to ask. Last week, we kicked it off with this question, is there a God? And we talked about a couple of arguments, a couple of uh, some defense for the existence of God, how we know God exists. And the way that we kind of pick these topics, by the way, is that on our website, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you want to jump on, you can submit your questions. And, and kind of the idea is this, what if you could ask God a question, any question you want, and you knew he would answer? You knew he would answer. And, and since we've made that available to anyone and everyone, we've got questions from Christians on there and theists. We've got questions from atheists. We just got one yesterday about reincarnation. I mean, we've got questions from everywhere. And what we've kind of tried to do is distill them down and decide which questions we're going to answer over this five-week series. And, and really, most importantly, which questions we're going to allow the Bible to speak into and answer for us. Uh, One of the things that Mike McNear, our our youth and children's pastor, did is is he went to your kids that that are part of our children's ministry here, part of Bayview Kids, and and he said to them, uh, what if you could ask God a question, any question you want, and you knew that he would answer? And so we got questions like, uh, can I drive a tank in heaven? Or why are boys so gross, hideous, smelly, and disgusting? And we talked about a couple of those last week, but we're going to, I I got a couple other questions that, that our kids asked. Uh, that, that Mike collected from our kids. These are our kids' questions for God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why this one's so funny to me. Since when does God have a beard? I don't know <laughs> why that one's so funny, but it is. That one tickles me. Uh, listen to the progression, the thought process here. Okay, When was God born? When was God's mom born? 
Who's God's mom? <laughs> you could almost see it, right? When was God born? If God was born, he must have a mom. When was she born? And who is she? I mean, very, very tough questions. Tough questions. This one I like, a little bit of irony here. Um, the question is, God, why are there so many people? So apparently someone has an introvert as a kid. Um, but the, the, the funny part about that one is, and if you know the Bible, you'll think this is funny. Why are there so many people? Who submitted this question? A kid named Noah. <laughs> Which I think is, I think that one's really, really funny too. So last week we talked about, is there a God? And as we've kind of distilled some of these questions down, you know, we'll get 10, 12, 15, the same type of question, and we'll kind of put them together and then allow the Bible to answer it. So today, here are two questions, two questions that we're going to try to answer, and some of you may have even been the folks that submitted these questions. And so the first is, how do I get to heaven? How do I experience eternal life? How do I see the kingdom of God in its full measure? You know, when I die, how do I go be with God? How does that happen? What do I need to do? And so, so we've got down into, into this simple question, how do I get to heaven? The second one I think is a very profound question, and it's why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just ignore or sweep under the rug or just kind of let it go? Why did Jesus have to die in order to extend forgiveness to us? And so here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. In, in 60 seconds, I'm going to tell you the answer to those two questions. I'm going to give you an overview of the full gospel. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at John chapter 3. And we're going to let John chapter 3, this conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus, kind of inform all of what I'm going to tell you in the next 60 seconds. And here, here it is. Uh, God, the creator of all that is, created you. And he created you just like you are, and he put inside of you a desire to worship him, a longing to be with him. You were made, I was made for relationship with God. But instead of worshiping him, instead of knowing him, instead of having a relationship with him, we ran away, we rebelled, we rejected God, we deposed him from his throne, and we exalted ourselves to the throne of our life. That is called sin. And that sin has far-reaching consequences. It results in identity crisis in each one of us. It's got social consequences. It's got consequences in terms of creation. And so God, rather than making us pay that debt, and rather than holding us responsible for that sin, he provided a way that if we accept it, God would pay that debt. And the way that he did that was he sent himself in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, to go to the cross and pay the debt that you and I owed. And so three days after Jesus died on the cross, he rose physically from the dead. He declared victory over hell and death and all of those things. He holds the key to those things. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And what he does today is he says, I have grace for you, undeserved favor, all that stuff you ruined with your sin, all that stuff you ruined with your rejection of me, I can make that all go away if you accept this free gift of eternal life. And he promises life and life abundantly to all that come to him in repentance. That means now I'm not on the throne of my life, God's on the throne of my life, and faith. That means trusting Jesus with your sin.
And today, some of you who may have never done that before, you're going to get an opportunity to accept that free gift of eternal life. But before we get there, we're going to let John chapter 3 talk all about what that good news about Jesus really is. And again, it's a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 3. John's the fourth gospel. The gospels are kind of autobiographies of Jesus. John was really Jesus's closest friend. They were tight. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was not a statement of arrogance. It was a neutral statement of fact. They were homies. They were as close of friends as you could possibly get. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you, or the scripture is up here on the screen. And we'll start in John chapter 3, verse 1. And John is talking about this conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. Verse 1 says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Stop there. There is a lot in that first verse of John chapter 3, a lot that we really need to know in order to really know what's going on in this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about Nicodemus. The first thing I can tell you is that he was a Pharisee. If you don't know the Bible very well, the Pharisees were kind of the most moral, the most ethical. They were kind of the priests, the pastors, the spiritual leaders, the ministers in that time and place for the nation of Israel. And the Pharisees, as part of their ministry, were the most moral and ethical people on the planet. Check this out. This is how moral these folks were, and Nicodemus was one of them. They followed all of the commandments in the Old Testament. And when that got boring, they added like 700 more. I'm not kidding. Like, that's not hyperbole. They literally added over 700 extra laws because they were so impeccably moral and ethical. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap these days. You know, they're self-righteous and they're arrogant, brood of vipers, all that stuff. And that's all true. But what we do know about Pharisees is that they were very, very moral. They were self-righteous in their morality, but they weren't lying when they said they were moral. So what John tells us about this man, Nicodemus, is that he was a Pharisee. He was as moral and ethical as they come. Number two, says there was a man who was a Pharisee and his name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Now, this would catch a Hebrew or a Jewish reader off guard. Why? Because Nicodemus is not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. Nicodemus preferred to go by his Greek name because he was likely educated in the Greek system. The only Hebrews that took Greek names were those who were educated in the Greek system. He was likely a Hellenistic Jew. That meant he could read the Old Testament in both Hebrew and Greek. So not only is he moral and ethical, he's as highly educated as they come. He's educated both in the things of God, in the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, but he's also educated when it comes to Greek stuff. He is smart as a whip. Number three, it says that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This meant that he was part of the Sanhedrin. It was a group of about 70 men that functioned as the judicial, legislative, and executive branch of the nation of Israel. There were very, very few of them. There was a limited number of them, and Nicodemus was one of them. 
So, if I'm a Jewish reader and I read that there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, here's the first thing that goes through my mind. Now, that's the best human representative we've got. Moral, highly educated, a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the best of the best. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants another religious in. He wants a notch in his Bible. He wants another chat with a respected rabbi, another spiritual conversation to prove to himself and to prove to others that he really is right with God. So here's what Nicodemus does. Look down at verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now listen, here's the thing about Nicodemus. This this question, this statement, it really isn't an invitation for Jesus to talk. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, we are affirming you, Jesus, We know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the things you're doing unless God is with him. As if the Son of God needed any affirmation. As if Jesus needed anybody to tell him, we think you're okay. The Pharisees, we put our stamp of approval on you. Nicodemus questioned his statement. It really isn't a question or an invitation for Jesus to speak. It's a pretend question that's really self-glorification. We affirm you. Now, Nicodemus is looking for self-glory, but Jesus wants something totally different. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's, It's heaven. Yes, that's part of it. But really, it's, it's the total and comprehensive peace of God. When God is, is, is in his rightful spot on the throne, when, when Prince Caspian, as they say in Narnia, is in charge, Narnia goes well. The Bible calls that word shalom. It's the peace of God, the total comprehensive peace of God. And one day, that will happen in its totality in heaven. So so what Jesus is saying is, unless one is born again, you're not going to see the full shalom. You're not going to see heaven. You're not going to see all of God's power and all of God's presence and grace and love totally in its its complete nature. So here's the deal. Nicodemus wants to demonstrate to Jesus. Listen close now. Nicodemus wants to demonstrate to Jesus that his position in the Sanhedrin that his morality, that his education, that his churchiness will get him into the kingdom. And yet, Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. In other words, if Nicodemus was to ask Jesus, am I going to go to heaven? Jesus would say, no. And then smile. You're trusting in your churchiness. You're trusting in your position. You're trusting in your morality. You're trusting in your education, but you're not trusting in me. You're not born again. You're not renewed. You're not regenerated. You might do all the right stuff. You might jump through all the right hoops. You might go to church every day. You might be able to tick all the boxes of morality, 
But your churchiness is not going to get you there. Now, check this out, and this is going to be tough for some of us to swallow this morning. Principle number one, if you're jotting notes down, here's principle number one, bottom line truth. Not all church people are Christian people. Yikes. That one's hard. Because, look, Nicodemus was the churchiest. Churchy von Churcherson could have been his name. He was, he was the churchiest of them all. Education, morality, position, everything you could want. And Jesus is saying, you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. Not all church people are Christian people. Just because you get in the water and quack doesn't mean you're a duck. Just because you show up to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. So if my churchiness is not going to get me to heaven, if, more, if my morality, if my education, my position, none of that's going to get me to heaven, how do I get to heaven? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 3, but before we kind of unpack what Jesus says in verse 3, we, we kind of have to understand a couple of very foundational things about the Bible itself and most importantly about the gospel. The, the Bible takes great pains from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation to communicate two very foundational truths about the good news of Jesus. And, and here's the first. The first foundational truth that, that the Bible takes great pains to communicate to us is that we have an utter inability to save ourselves because of our sin. We are rendered, rendered helpless, powerless, and hopeless we are utterly unable to do anything to save ourselves because of our sin. Now, I know that's a little discouraging, but we'll get to the good news in a minute. But welcome to church. We talk about sin. And so I want you to know this morning, even before we get into this, this isn't even my notes, I just, I just sense this. Here's what I'm not going to do this morning. I'm not going to tell you how to change your sin pattern. I'm not going to teach how to modify your behavior. Jesus is not interested in that with Nicodemus. Why? Because Nicodemus' behavior is already modified to the nth degree. It's not about behavior. Behavior hasn't done squat for Nicodemus. Jesus tells us how we're going to be reborn. So what is this concept? What is sin? And for most of us, when we ask that question, like, what is sin? We think uh, sin is doing bad stuff. And we start with the Ten Commandments. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't covet your neighbor's donkey. Or who, whose neighbor has a donkey anymore? Anyways, beside the point. Don't, you know, don't do all those things. And so, and so we say, okay, uh, if I'm sinning, if, if the Ten Commandments says do this, and then I, or they say don't do this, and I do it, it's a sin. Do you know we typically forget the First Commandment? We typically just leave that out. You should have no other gods before me. Worship me alone. Here's the thing. In other words, sin isn't just doing bad stuff. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it, sin is making good stuff ultimate stuff. Sin is worshiping created things rather than the creator. It's removing God from his rightful spot on the throne and replacing him with something else. It's finding our core identity, our core worth, our value in one of a billion options, all of which are not God. That's sin. 
And I don't have the time this morning to unpack this whole thing, but, but just suffice it to say that everybody does this. We're all worshiping something because we're hardwired to do so. And so when we remove God from his throne and we're not worshiping him, it's not that worship goes away in our life. It just gets relocated somewhere else. We worship the God of self. We worship the God of sports, the God of family, the God of wealth, fame, success, children, the God of benign whateverism. I'm okay, you're okay. We worship at that throne. We worship the God of our own comfort. We worship all sorts of things that aren't God. If you think that's not you, let me ask you four questions real quick. You just answer them in your own head. And, and the answer to these four questions will tell you what you're worshiping right here in this moment. Whether it's God or something else, these four questions, 99 times out of 100, will tell you. One, what do you spend your money on? Two, when there's nothing else to think about, what do you think about? Three, when someone asks you to tell them about yourself, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm an engineer. I'm a dad. I retired early. Four, what would shake your core identity most if you lost that? What do you spend your money on? What do you think about when there's nothing else to think about? When you're asked to tell somebody about yourself, what do you tell them? And what would shake your core identity most if you lost it? Typically, the answer to those four questions, not always, but typically, the answer to those four questions will tell you what you're worshiping in this moment, whether it's God or something else. The interesting part about sin, and, and, and I, love, I love talking about sin, it, it's because, because it's the one thing that I have the most empirical evidence to support. Right? I have a lot of empirical evidence in my own life to demonstrate that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So licentious folks, that's the $2 Bible word for people who uh, pursue sex, uh, drugs, and rock and roll. It's typically pretty easy to convince those folks that they're sinners. You bring something up to a person who's living in a licentious life and you know, they're on drugs and they're sleeping around and they, you know, they, they smoke and play cards and dance or whatever sinners do. I don't know. Um, I've just read about it on the internet. So you, you talk to them about sin. You say, hey, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And they say, well, no, duh. Like, I get that. I get that sin piece. What they do with it is a different story, but typically it's easy for them to wrap their mind around. Here's the thing. When we're committing the sin of religion, like Nicodemus is, when we're trusting in our own goodness, our own morality, our own action, our own position to reconcile us to God and to solve our sin problem, those kinds of folks are far more difficult to convince that they're a sinner in need of a savior. Far more difficult. But I am telling you, Nicodemus was not a sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy, and he still would not see the kingdom of God. Church people aren't always Christian people. Flannery O'Connor is a great author. She once wrote this, that um, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. See, if I kind of clean it up all on my own, if I've kind of got all my I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of the law and the moral law God wants me to live up to, I don't see myself as a sinner in need of a savior, but the reality is you are. I am. If this is you, if you're trusting in your own goodness, 
your own position, your own churchiness, then I have bad news. Your God is religion. And if your God is religion, then your God isn't the one true God. It's religion, not God. In short, that means that you're like Nicodemus, that you aren't a Christian. And you won't, like Nicodemus, see the kingdom of God. The consequences of this sin, whatever flavor of sin you like, sex, drugs, rock and roll, religionism, whatever flavor of sin you like, the consequences are far-reaching. It results in an identity crisis within us. It results in instability. It results in death and decay in our own life and even in how God created what he created the earth to look like, the destruction that, that has, is, is a result of our sin. And if, if we recognize our sin for what it is, removing God from his rightful throne and replacing, uh, replacing the person on that throne with ourselves, if we're worshiping created things rather than the creator, it makes sense that we're not just looking at a rehabilitation project here when it comes to you and me and our spirits, the inside of us. We're looking at a complete spiritual reset. That's, that's how you solve the sin problem. A complete spiritual reset. Listen to what Tim Keller, is one of my favorite authors, listen to what he says about sin's drastic, comprehensive, and far-reaching results. Listen, listen to what he says about how to solve that problem. He says, the only solution is not simply to change our behavior, but to reorient and center the entire heart and life on God. It's great because, because Tim Keller is just rephrasing Jesus from John 3, verse 3. Look at, look at verse 3. Jesus, again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the condition for seeing the kingdom of God? Unless one is what? Born again. Say it with me. Born again. It's not about your behavior. It's not about morality, position, education, all the other things you've trusted in. It's about a complete spiritual reset. It's about new life. It's about being, say it with me, born again. This is what Jesus is saying. We're not talking about uh, rehabilitation or recovery or restructuring or reorganizing or redecorating or rearranging. We're not talking about recommitting or reforming. We're talking about renewal, restarting, re birth. If you have a field of grass and you want wheat, you don't just plant wheat. You delete and pull up all the grass first, and then you plant wheat. Deleting and pulling up the grass is the beginning of the rebirth process, and that first step is called forgiveness. It's called forgiveness, and that's why God sent his son Jesus so he could forgive, so he could remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, and so he could renew us and give us new birth, so we could be born again in Christ. Now, here's question number two. This is great. Why did Jesus have to die for that? Why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't he just ignore? Why couldn't he just call it good? We're all even and not send Jesus to die. I want to take an earthly example and we'll apply it to God, okay? So this happened uh, on Thursday or Friday right around the corner from my house. That is the farmer's market by my house. That is someone's vehicle parked on top of the farmer's market by my house. If, is that your car, anybody? 
Okay, good. Um, I didn't want to embarrass that person. So look, here's what happened. A, a, a person was at the farmer's market, and they're buying their apples and apricots and pumpkins and whatever else they buy. And, and then they mixed up two really critical letters when you're driving a car, the R and the D, reverse and drive. So instead of putting the car in drive, they put the car in reverse, and they backed over all the pumpkins and parked on top of the apples. Okay, so th there's been some damage done. Now listen, someone's going to pay for the damage. It's going to be the driver of the car, the insurance or whatever, or just out of pocket, or it's going to be the owner of the farmer's market. Well, why can't, the, why can't the owner of the farmer's market just sweep it under the rug? Why can't the owner of the farmer's market just kind of forget about it? Because there's been damage done. I mean, I guess you could just pull the car away and call it quits, but the, farmer's market, the owner of the farmer's market set up the farmer's market like he wanted it. And now it's been broken. It's been damaged. There's, it's been destroyed. It needs to get fixed, and it's going to cost money. We would never expect the owner of the farmer's market just to, yeah, it's all good. We would expect the owner of the farmer's market to hold the driver of the car accountable. Or if the farmer's market was the owner of the farmer's market was gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, like our God is, maybe the owner of the farmer's market would pay for the damages himself. That's called forgiveness. Here's the thing. We have backed the car of our life up on top of the creation that God put in place. We have done damage. The sin we have committed has caused destruction. If God just forgot about it, he's not, he's, not, he's not fixing the damage. He's not fixing the destruction. He sent his son Jesus to pay for it with his life. We would never expect the owner of the farmer's market to just forget. We shouldn't expect it from God because forgiveness, number one, is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Someone's always going to pay for the damage. If someone wrongs you, if someone takes money from you, if someone slanders your name and spreads lies about you, there is damage that gets done and someone's going to pay for it. So when you extend forgiveness to another person, you'll, you're saying, I will take that debt on myself. When God extends his offer of forgiveness to you, he's making a sacrifice to rectify and remedy what you and I messed up. It's sacrificial. Number two, forgiveness is personal. Forgiveness is personal. Someone halfway across the world that I don't know, I can't extend forgiveness to them no matter what they do. I have to engage in a personal relationship, a personal exchange with them. I have to make a sacrifice, and I have to get personal with them in order to extend forgiveness. If, if we ask God, God, could you just forget it rather than deal with it, rather than fix it? It, it reveals our misunderstanding of sin's far-reaching consequences. The payment that was made on the cross is so those consequences could get fixed. The damage could be repaired. We could be restored. God had a personal problem with you and me. He came to deal with it personally. We owed God a debt 
he sent his son as a sacrifice to pay the debt on our behalf. So let's look at how he did it. John chapter 3, verse 14. Later on in the conversation, Jesus says this in verse 14 to Nicodemus. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, in order to understand that verse, we've got to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Here's what happened. In the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel is running around everywhere, and they're running away from God. They're rebelling. They're rejecting him. They've deposed him from his throne, and they've exalted themselves and other things in that place. And in order to call them back to himself, God sends these vipers, these serpents. They're like little sand vipers, and they would bite people in the nation of Israel, and the result of that bite was death. That's what happened. Those were the consequences. So Moses goes to God and he goes, how do we fix this thing? What do you want us to do? And God says, here's the deal. You look to me and me alone for healing. You look to me and me alone for redemption. You look to me and me alone for life. Don't go see a doctor. Don't form a committee. Don't band together. Don't modify your behavior. None of that's going to work. You look to me. And Moses goes, okay, how do we do that? He says, I want you to make a brass snake and put it on a stick and lift it up. And anytime anybody gets bit, they look at the snake. And that wasn't idol worship. That wasn't lifting up a snake and like, oh, yes, little snake, we praise you. It was God's representative. It was, God, it was, a, it was a symbol just a symbol of looking to God for full and complete restoration. So when Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up just like that snake, the Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. He says, just like that snake was put on a pole and lifted up and you look to the snake for healing, I'm going to be put on a pole and lifted up. You look to me for healing, and he who believes in Jesus would have eternal life. John 3, verse 16, one of my favorite uh, scripture texts, the, the first text, the first verse that Bible translators translate, one of the most popular Bible verses of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying that God's redemption plan, sending his son for you, lifting his son up on a cross to die in your place, to come personally and sacrificially to extend forgiveness to you and to repair all the damage you've done by your sin. Listen, it's motivated out of his love for you. He so loved the world. When he created, he said it was good, and then we messed it up. And he says, I love it too much to let it go. I'll fix it. And I'll send my son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, see the kingdom of God, go to heaven. This is the offer that Christ extends. The interesting part about that word believe, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult word sometimes to kind of wrap our minds around. I read a story about a missionary this week. It's a great story. 
uh, he, his missionary was trying to translate John 3.16 into indigenous language of a people in Africa. And, and he came across, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes, and as he learned this language, this indigenous African language, he realized that there wasn't really a word for believe. There wasn't really a word for trust. There wasn't really a word for faith in this language. It's like, how in the world am I going to translate this thing? That faith is critical. That, that's, that's the condition. Whoever believes will have eternal life. That's the, that's the condition. I've got to figure out how to translate this thing. So he, he said he was, uh, this missionary tells the story, he was hunting with a friend and they killed like a deer or whatever and they brought this thing back and it was a very long day and they were exhausted. And this friend of his from this African tribe says, oh man, what a long day, I'm just exhausted, I've had it, I've come to the end of myself, I'm just going to stretch myself out here and rest. And he thought, that's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever stretches themselves out and rests on Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the invitation of the gospel. The invitation is to say yes to Jesus. That's the invitation. Jesus says, you owed God a debt, and God sent me, God in the flesh, to take that debt, to pay that price that you owed. I came personally, I made a sacrifice to remedy the effects of sin so that you might be born again. I invite you to accept that free gift of eternal life. And the response is this. Yes, Jesus, I accept that free gift. Yes, I trust you. I stretch myself out and rest on you to deal with my sin. And yes, I trust you with my life. In other words, I once deposed you from your throne, and now I'm going to put you back. The Bible calls it repentance and faith. It's simply saying yes to Jesus and trusting him with your sin. Yes to Jesus and trusting him with your life. How do you get to heaven? That's how. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he had to deal with the effects and the consequences of sin. And he loved the world too much to just let it go. Would you pray with me? Just in a moment of quiet with heads bowed and with eyes closed, uh, I know that there are folks in this room this morning that have never said yes to Jesus. Maybe your sin was the sin of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Maybe you've run so far away from him you, you can't even see God from where you're at. I want you to know that as you're running away from him, the moment you turn, you'll recognize that God's been following close behind you the entire time. Maybe your sin is the sin of religionism, like Nicodemus. Maybe you've lifted up your own morality, your own church attendance. I've been here a long time, and, and, and I pray, and I read my Bible, and I know a lot of stuff about Jesus. I know a lot of stuff about the Bible. That's what's going to get me to heaven. Can I just be honest with you? It's not. Just as Jesus was honest with Nicodemus, I want to be honest with you. I want you to know it's not going to get you there. Because it's still worshiping self. It's still worshiping your own morality, your own education, your own position. And Jesus invites all those who struggled with the sin of religionism, those who struggle with, 
with licentious living and those who struggle with any sin. It all boils down to worshiping something that isn't God. And Jesus invites all to accept that free gift of eternal life, to trust him, to deal with that sin, and to trust him as Lord of your life. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, if you feel that stirring of the Spirit in your heart, I want you to know that that kind of uh, anxious feeling maybe that you feel or that maybe sense of God speaking to you, it's not like bad Mexican food or something that you ate last night. Like that's really the Spirit of God talking to you, drawing you near, calling you to say yes to Him. So I'm gonna pray a prayer and, and, and you don't have to pray it out loud. You can just pray it in your heart. He's God, He hears your heart. He knows your thoughts. And if you would like to say yes to Jesus for the very first time, I invite you to pray this prayer this morning. Simply this, God, I know I've deposed you from your throne. Maybe I don't see sin and it's full effects, but I know, I know I've taken you down from your throne and, and I've put something else there. Maybe it's real bad stuff that I've put there. Maybe I've just made good stuff, ultimate stuff, but the reality is I'm worshiping something that isn't you. I realize that sin has had an impact. It's been destructive. It's had consequences. And God, you sent your son Jesus to remedy that, to pay the price, to pay the debt. He came personally and he came to make a sacrifice that I owed, he paid the debt I owed. And today I stretch myself out and rest on Jesus to deal with it for me. I want you to know if you prayed that prayer today that God, the scripture says that there's one time in heaven where they throw a party, once. And it's when people pray the prayer that you just prayed. So if you prayed that prayer, I want you to know that there is a banner in heaven with your name on it all of heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. With heads bowed and eyes closed, just for the sake of privacy, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, if you said yes to Jesus for the first time, I just, I just want to know who you are. So again, heads bowed and eyes closed. Would you just slip your hand up for me? Let me know that you prayed that prayer for the first time. Cool. Great. Praise God. Just slip your hand up for me. Awesome. Praise God. Awesome. I see you. Yep. Good. Wonderful. God welcomes you home. Your sin is dealt with. You don't have to deal with its consequences anymore. It's as far away as the east is from the west. God, we rest on your grace today, on favor that you've bestowed on us that we did not deserve. God, your grace is amazing. Your grace saves. Your grace is transforming. We celebrate your goodness and your grace to us today, even, even though we never, never, never deserved it. In Christ's name.